and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rim, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. Well, we said this week we'd be discussing the British Olympic selection, but at the time of recording, we are still waiting for that announcement. I do think you'll probably know those teams by the time you're listening to this, but as I speak, I don't know them. So I thought I would bring you a bit of Horse and Hound Olympic news instead. It's something that we're all really excited about. So during the games, we will be bringing you daily podcasts. Yes, you heard that right. You will be able to get your Horse and Hound podcast fix every single day. So we will have 12 episodes, which will tally with the 12 days of sport from Tokyo. They will all be free for everyone to access just as soon as we can get them out. So do make sure you're subscribed to the Horse and Hound podcast so you don't miss a thing. Today, we're also thinking about the Paralympics because we're talking to British multi-medal para-dressage rider Sophie Wells, who tells us all about her London 2012 ride, Pinocchio. Pinocchio was literally heart of gold and took me to my first paras and able-bodied and Grand Prix. And yeah, his is literally one in a million. I'll also be chatting to our news team about the latest on Tokyo logistics, the ethics of using horses for sport, and taking horses' mental well-being into account on end-of-life decisions. Finally, trainer Jason Webb will give advice on helping introduce horses to traffic. The first thing to say is, and this applies to all training when you're introducing something new to a horse, start with a safe environment that you can control. We'll hear more from Jason later. For now, screw those studs and let's get going. I'm Lucy Elder, Horse and Hound Senior News Writer, and this week I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast multiple medal-winning para-dressage star Sophie Wells. Sophie is a Paralympic, World and European gold medalist. She's a reigning world champion in her grade with her ride Sea Fatal Attraction, known as George, following their gold medal-winning performance at the World Equestrian Games in Tryon in 2018. She was part of the gold medal winning side at the London Paralympic Games with Pinocchio, where she took two individual silver medals. And at Rio in 2016, she won team and individual gold with Valerius. She has ridden for Britain on both para and able body teams, representing her country at two Young Rider European Championships in able body dressage, alongside her achievements at para senior championships. And she competes up to Grand Prix level. Welcome, Sophie. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Delighted to have you on. So we're talking not long after the list of nominated entries for Tokyo. And there's quite a lot of excitement build, building up already. But I wondered first if we could take a look back and ask about your your first championship call up, which was, am I right in saying, was that the 2009 Europeans? Yeah, 2009. So I, I, I did compete non-medalist at the 2007 World Championships yeah. um, because it was at Hartbury. And then I was first reserved for Beijing. But 2009 was my first championship that I actually competed in and medalled. Um, I mean, it feels, yeah, a very long time ago now, 19 years old. Amazing, really. And that was with, was that with Pinocchio? Yes, Pinocchio. So he was definitely like my dream horse to put me on the world stage, literally. And yeah, all of those different things that you've mentioned. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's quite surreal, really, to hear that through. But yeah, Pinocchio was 
literally heart of gold and took me to my first paras and able-bodied and grand prix and yeah so he was he's a wonderful I mean, he's 24 years old now um retired still with me still the gentle giant that he's always been so yeah it's lovely that he's um he's still with you and still retired with you and things yeah he's um he does still work do a little bit of work i've got um a lovely lady one of my clients that um kind of rides him and just keeps him ticking over really and keeps him thinking that he's you know still still out there and and stuff but he's uh yeah i mean he's he's 24 he looks amazing he retired from competition i mean with me 2015 um actually <laughs> my last competition with him i went in before um charlotte and Villegro at hartbury cdi <laughs> when it was the worst test we'd done but yeah most surreal start list um to be on but that was definitely the day he said that he didn't want to he didn't want to compete at grand prix anymore and i always said that the day he didn't want to do it absolutely he did not need to do it anymore and um he still competed at a lower level with a few of my um riders at, at grade one and grade four and gave them loads of experience which was amazing and and he loved it because he didn't have to to do all the grand prix work and kept his his soul alive really but yeah when he he didn't want to come here anymore he absolutely didn't need to and now he just plays at home oh lovely what a star he's been for for you for british dressage for as you said all those other riders as well that have you know enjoyed him yeah absolutely i mean you know you don't get many horses that can compete at grand prix and take a grade one you know around several internationals at walk only and take me to the young rider europeans and yeah he's he's literally one in a million and tell us a bit about how how your partnership with him came about <laughs> it's a funny story actually because i just uh, lost touchdown he had a tumor in his foot um after beijing and the only horse i had was valerius who obviously ended up going to, to rio but at the time he was only five years old and i i didn't have any other horse to, so i needed something to kind of take over from touchdown to keep me on the world-class program and to keep obviously moving forwards and I don't know what gave me <laughs> the balls as such to call up about about Pinocchio but I've seen he'd been advertised on Horse Quest for quite a long time and I just called up and asked if he was still for sale and you know we didn't have any money to put into a horse at all because we put everything into touchdown and um, but he'd been for sale for a while and I just called up and um the rider Pippa Fisher said oh sorry he's not for sale anymore he's he's um just failed the betting today actually and I I asked how he'd failed the betting and um she said he he's got a heart murmur and I just said like is he still fit and healthy and you know able to to do everything she was Mm -hmm. like yeah absolutely like we wouldn't have known if we hadn't had him betted to be sold so I said oh well you know like would the owner be interested in leasing him or loaning him so she was like you know I'll, I'll go and speak to them but obviously it's it's a lot for them to take in at the minute and anyway long story short yeah I, I leased him from um, Jackie and Neil Walker um, who have owned him since a five-year-old and started leasing him then loaned him beginning of 2009 and yeah literally the rest is history but you know he's he he has got quite a few different problems in his heart he had enlargement of the left side he had a leaky valve and and the heart murmur so we we had everything checked yeah. regularly 
and the fitter he was and the leaner he was, the better his heart functioned and, yeah, literally flew all around the world with us and gave his owners some, you know, amazing experiences. And Jackie and Neil have been, honestly, the most wonderful owners that I could wish for and they're still involved in horses with me now and literally couldn't have have been better really you know for those situations you know I was in a difficult situation you know they they at the time thought that they had a horse that was worthless as mm-hmm. such um so yeah it, pretty amazing absolutely amazing as you said and and it was him wasn't it that you took to your first Paralympics is that right yeah in London 2012 yeah. yeah I mean what a moment what was that like to be called up for the home games I mean, I think from from what happened with touchdown with him, I was reserve and then got the call up to be selected, and then he went lame in quarantine. So, yes, of course, that was Beijing two thousand and eight, wasn't it? Yeah, I think even when I was selected for London, I was still apprehensive that something might go wrong. Mm. Um, so it wasn't actually until obviously we would we got into the village and yeah, we were actually in London twenty twelve that it started to sink in, and I, you know trotting into the Greenwich arena with him on that first day and I can so vividly remember the commentator said although this next ride is British please like refrain from applauding until after the test and the announcers going in and literally everybody like cheered and my heart went in my mouth and I literally, I'd had visions, like cause we'd gone to the Olympics and watched like Carl and Charlotte and Laura be so amazing and got goosebumps in that arena. And I'd had visions of Pinocchio was a bolter, at, like just by nature, like if he mm-hmm. if he was scared, like he'd just stick his head up in the bolt. I just had visions of him like sticking his head up and I was ending up in like Canary Wharf. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I literally, they cheered as we trotted in and I felt him hold his breath and I literally just patted him and said, it's okay. And I had the most surreal experience of him just almost taking that deep breath as well and being like, okay, we've got this. And and yeah, we literally produced the best test up to that point of our lives on that first day in the team competition. And yeah, the relief and was immense when we'd finished and just to look round and see the British people cheering and yeah just the most surreal experience and then I kind of try and not forget the rest of the competition but I feel like <laughs> not a, not a failure as such like I've I've definitely um, made peace with it much more now um, but he you know he was on track to be um, individual you know Paralympic champion and um, that didn't quite come off in the individual test in the freestyle. And I feel like he earned that. But, um, yeah, we made a mistake and that didn't happen. But, that yeah, that first day trotting in and, and that feeling, it just just awesome. And London in itself, I mean, what do you think about how important that was in putting dressage and paradressage on the map in Britain and, I mean, showing showing people what it's all about? And Yeah, I mean, it put the dancing horses on the map definitely mm-hmm. you know before London if anyone asked what you did and you said dressage they would have no clue what, mm-hmm. <laughs> what dressage was mm-hmm. and dressage became you know within the vocabulary of you know everyday people which is just amazing and how parasport was talked about and normalized within the general public 
was huge from London and you know the schools that I went into before London having been world and European champion we, you know we went into schools and and that was great but children were definitely afraid of disability but they'd not seen disability it wasn't as prominent on media and talked about or seen in schools as much and then there was just such a massive shift after London you know how it was perceived was so different and it was so positive yeah London was such a huge turning point I think with with dressage full stop but also then disability sport and disability in general I'm excited as well that I've been I've been writing about and reading about that um uh, para question is going to be broadcast live from Tokyo this year I think that's hopefully going to be another huge important step forward and um yeah definitely I think that accessibility to to sport and to yeah para dressage I mean when I first got um talent spotted by David Hamer and able body talent spotting in 2002 I think like I'd never had seen disability mm-hmm. sport full stop let alone dressage you know I, I would follow dressage able-bodied but not you know seen anything um paralympic wise and yeah the fact that now it's obviously social media is very different now 20 years on and stuff but it's accessible to to children you know growing up with disability and seeing what is possible now um and moving on to rio um where you went on the wonderful valerius and you added Paralympic glory there to your world and your European championship medals and things what what memories do you have of Rio and what do you have of him as well yeah so Reese, um I got him at four and a half years old um and by the time we went to Rio I think he was 14 so yeah like it had been a massive journey to that point so obviously that was very special you know, having him selected to be there full stop. I think between London and Rio, I went through a massive mindset shift because I felt like I'd failed in London and I didn't want to do the same again in Rio. And I did a lot of like sports like work and very was very process focused for Rio in just going out and trying to do the best that I could do with him in the arena. And the first day of competition, it went well, like we did a solid team test for the team, which was great, but it wasn't um, it wasn't the best we could do. Like he was a little bit nervous. But then for the individual, it was going really, really well. And I remember two birds, they had these weird birds in Rio, sitting in the arena for my last kind of half pass and then centre line. Yeah. And yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah, heart in mouth moment, but... I was literally like, you are not ruining this for me. Like, <laughs> I am going for this now. Yeah, finish the test. And I can just remember, like, this massive relief that we'd actually done the best that we could possibly have done with what we had, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, which was an amazing feeling. And I'm not the most outwardly emotional person, so I wouldn't cry all the time. But I literally came out of that test and saw my coach, Angela Weiss, and just burst into tears because I just knew that I had done what I had wanted to do in London and I had done Reese justice. We came out and had the tack check and then I wanted to go away from like all the media, mm. nicest possible way. <laughs> like, of course, yeah. We love you. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to go away from like 
any of the screens that would tell me the score. I wanted to go and enjoy the moment that I'd kind of worked so hard for um, and then just enjoy that without knowing marks or placings or whatever. Um, So we went into the indoor arena. So it was only me there. So I was just walking him off and like all of obviously our team were in the corner and they were all obviously on their phones trying to find out the score and what, you know, where we were placed, etc. And I was walking around and I was literally like, I don't want the result to ruin this feeling. So I was just walking around and then I got to the point and Lucy Bell, our team physio, said, So if you're gonna have to get off, like you need to get off. And I was like, No, I don't I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it. She was like, Get off. So I got off and then she just said, You've done it and I just burst into tears again and the whole of the team, you know, the support staff around us were all very emotional as well because they'd all been there, you know, from, well, A, from quite way back in the beginning, but obviously in London as well. And, um, yeah, that meant so, so much just in that moment to know that we'd, A, done the best that we could have done, but also that it was enough. And I'd been telling myself to at least that year that the result isn't what matters and I obviously had been not kidding myself with that but obviously the result did matter but mm-hmm. I was trying to not let it matter just because obviously we can't control that we can control to some extent our performance etc so yeah I mean yeah just that relief and the pride I had in him that you know he'd I'd had him from a baby and you know, he'd, he'd done that performance when it mattered and that was, yeah, it was quite special. Absolutely. And as you said there, the fact that you had him from a baby as well, like you produced that all the way, all the yeah. way through. Yeah. Yeah. He'd, he'd broke my ribs when he was five and yeah, <laughs> we'd, we'd had many moments like any other, you know, horse rider combination has had, but it be culminated in that. Yeah. It was really special. And then of course that kind of brings us up now from that Paralympics onto onto this cycle, this slightly extended cycle that we're on now, um, five five years later. And you've got your your wonderful, wonderful top ride, Sea Fatal Attraction, lovely George. And he's just I mean, I love watching him because he's so expressive in his performance. <laughs> he really is just a joy to watch. And you've achieved so much with him, national titles, medals, um Tell me, does his personality match how expressive he is in, in the arena? What's he, what's, what's he like? He's very expressive. <laughs> um, he's very, he knows what he likes. So he likes his food and he likes his bed. He likes his own space in his stable. Yeah, he's very, very food orientated. He's very cuddly outside of the stable. In the stable, like if it's around feed time, you just leave him to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, otherwise you get some some horrible faces. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously we love him for that as well. And um, he's yeah, he's a he's a real character, and he, he really loves the camera. As soon as there's a camera around, he's got his ears pricked and he's looking for the camera. Yeah, he's funny quite a diva you can't like sedate him you can't pull his mane you can't do all of those little things like the dentist without being sedated like those sorts of things he's just he's quite dramatic about stuff but he's very good at eating sleeping and dancing (laughs) (laughs) absolutely he can definitely be dramatic when he's as when he's as good as he is and um, (laughs) achieve what he has 
And so again, as I sort of said at the beginning, we're speaking not long at all after the Paradressage nominated entries were released. Um, you've got two other horses on there. You've got Doncara M and if I pronounce this wrong, please tell me. <laughs> yeah, right. Classic Jules Gusenhoff. Yes, that's yeah, it, yeah. Right. Classic Jules Um Tell us a little bit about them. Are they similar to George? Are they different? Um, yeah, what, what are they yeah. like? I mean, they're literally, you couldn't get three horses that are any different, to be honest. Yeah. Um, George is very confident in himself, but he can get quite nervous of arenas. So, yeah, he, Rotterdam for the Europeans two years ago was very enclosed arena. Everything was on top of him and, and he doesn't like that as such. Whereas Don Cara is very, is quite confident in the arena in terms of the environment. He's not spooky mm-hmm. as such, but... He's very underconfident in himself, um, which is a very different dynamic to have, obviously. And then Jay-Z, who (laughs) we've shortened his very long name. um, (laughs) He's, I mean, bless him, he's only seven and he's 17.3. He's very, very different to the other two. He finds everything naturally quite easy in his Mm -hmm. work, which is why he's at this point and... You know, he hasn't competed a huge amount, partly because of COVID. I mean, that was his six-year-old year last year. Um, so he did the regionals before that, qualified for the nationals, obviously. That didn't happen. But, like, we've just got back from Holland with him where he got his, his uh, MER um, and qualified for Tokyo. And, yeah, he took everything in his stride. And, yeah, I mean, he, he needs to get stronger and a little bit braver and, and stuff but that's all just part of the process that's you know him just growing as a horse and but yeah I mean I feel very very lucky to have three horses all nominated for Tokyo and yeah I mean so much can happen can't it but I'm very lucky to have those those three horses with such great owners exciting exciting times for this year and and for the future certainly hopefully yeah Brilliant. Well, Sophie, thank you so very much for your time and we wish you all the best with your wonderful string. Amazing. Thank you. So the team announcement, we're expecting that on 16th of July and you can follow all the coverage in the build-up and from the Paralympics itself with Horse and Hound. I'm going to be the reporter out on the ground in Tokyo and we'll be covering all the action across our Horse and Hound platforms. So Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I'm here today with two members of the Horse and Hound News Desk. So first of all, let's head over to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. Thinking I'm growing webbed feet because it's just done nothing but pour with rain and I really could do with getting the hay cut soon. But um, yeah, never happy, whatever the weather's doing. (laughs) (laughs) It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too wet. (laughs) And we also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How are you, Becky? I'm good, thank you. We've actually had loads of sun, so I'm, I'm sorry to those that have all this rain. But um, no, I'm well. Um, my horse, Chloe, she's not been well for a few weeks, but actually she I got back on board yesterday, so I'm a very happy bunny today. Oh, that's good to hear. Well, I know I was saying last week that uh, Alfie had had a, a bit of a bit of a hot leg and some lameness as well, but he's been given the go-ahead to go out in his field and have a couple of quiet weeks out and then restart work, hopefully, if he stays sound in a couple of weeks' time. So, fingers crossed, all our horses' soundness and illness issues are going in the right direction at the moment. 
So we said that we were going to be talking about British teams being selected today on last week's podcast. That is not going to be happening. There was a delay to the announcement that was due on Monday this week, although I do expect that the teams probably will have been revealed by the time you listen to this podcast, but not at the time of recording. But it doesn't mean that we've got no Tokyo news to talk about. We have a story on the news pages of the magazine this week, and I have also written a column in the magazine about the sort of ongoing developments in the restrictions which will be in place at the games around sort of quarantine and that sort of thing. It all sounds very complicated. I know you've been um, having a lot of work trying to sort out what's going on with your trip to Tokyo. Can you tell us what's happening? Yeah, exactly, Eleanor. So the UK has been added to Japan's red list because of the prevalence of the Delta variant in the UK. And initially, there were concerns that athletes who had been in the UK in the previous 14 days would face a six-day hotel isolation on arrival in Japan. And this is a bit of a moving and unclear situation, as I could definitely say from my own experience of trying to find out what's going on. So I feel very sorry for the British Equestrian Federation and the BOA, the British Olympic Association, trying to sort out what's happening for hundreds of athletes because it's pretty stressful just trying to sort it out for three journalists. But essentially, at the moment, it looks like UK arrivals into Tokyo will be restricted to not mixing with other squads for their first three days in Japan, rather than having to actually do strict hotel isolation. So obviously exactly what that means is going to depend on your sort of training situation and your hotel situation and and things as I say are quite fluid and unclear but that is that that's the situation at the moment and the British Equestrian Federation said that the British Olympic Association are in direct dialogue with the Tokyo Organising Committee and the IOC on this and they're hopeful that it'll be sort of a limited need to, to isolate or quarantine that they're positive there's a workable solution and they're carrying on with preparations and of course there's there's always the option of plans B, C, D and E uh, but at the moment there are no changes to sort of preparations or, or travel plans for our, our equestrian athletes because of this. And Pippa what do you think life will be like while you're at the Games? Oh, Becky, I think it's going to be uh, interesting and possibly actually boring in some ways. So everybody's lives are going to be governed by these documents called playbooks. And I'm not sure why they're called playbooks, because there's going to be no play. That is a fundamental. It's all about just doing your job and not playing at all, basically. So the restrictions are particularly tight in the first 14 days after arrival. So everybody, no matter where they're coming from or what their role, has to file an activity plan or have one filed on their behalf, um, which says where they're going to go in those first 14 days it's not day by day so it's not actually that onerous to fill in which was something we were unsure about until we actually saw it but it does list the places you're allowed to go so for example for the horse and hound journalists the places we're allowed to go are literally the equestrian park the cross-country venue the main press centre and our hotel. Those are the only places we can go for the first 14 days. So there's going to be, as I say, no play, no restaurants, no (laughs) shops, no tourist areas, no going to see other sports, uh, no walking around the city. You're not allowed to go out for a run, which I'm not sure you'd want to anyway because it's so hot. But um, yeah, it's going to be, I think, quite restrictive for everybody. And I just really hope that the athletes are able to enjoy it to some extent to get some you know the olympic experience is going to be really different you know people always talk about having sort of breakfast in the olympic village with with other other athletes and meeting other famous athletes and i don't know that there's going to be a lot of that because you're very much encouraged to to eat alone um, and keep your distance so i hope the athletes are able to get some part of the experience and and enjoy their victories even while obviously keeping everyone safe mm, and i bet it must be starting to feel very real now for people yeah i have literally 
literally today had an email from the BOA asking me what address to send my accreditation to. So I'm really excited yeah, that accreditation exciting. turning up. <laughs> yeah, will definitely make it feel real. But um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for sure. And, uh, and an interesting one to see how it pans out. In other news, this week, Eleanor, you've been reporting on a World Horse Welfare webinar about the ethics of using horses in sport. Can you tell us a bit more about who is speaking at that and what sort of issues they were addressing? Yeah, this is this is something I find really interesting and have reported on a few times over the, the last year or two. This A lot of it is to do with uh, horse sport as a whole and its social license to operate, which is essentially sort of public acceptance that that horse sport is okay and 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 this was a, a webinar run by world horse welfare the title was how to keep horse sport ethical uh, which they ran with the university of nottingham and the main uh, speaker in the first part was professor madeline campbell who holds uh, quite a few senior positions in universities and, and veterinary organizations about animal welfare and ethics and you know, she, her, her big question was, is it ethical to ride horses and use them in sport? And her answer was yes. And, and that's an answer she's come to through loads of thought as an owner, breeder and rider herself, but also using these different um, ethical frameworks and theories. And, and she says she sees and using animals in sport as no different to any of the other, you know, many, many ways that we and interact with animals, even including keeping them with pets. But as long as their welfare and well-being, and that's mental as well as physical, um, is, is always at the, the absolute forefront of everything. What sort of specific examples of, of issues that we should think about did Professor Campbell mention? Well, she was saying she World Horse Welfare is funding some research on on an ethical framework that people should have in mind when they're using horses in sport with and that has three core principles which is always minimizing the negative and maximizing the positive welfare impacts and again looking at mental and physical uh, effects identifying and minimizing risk as much as possible which of course a lot of that has already been going on with you know things like uh, the eventing risk steering group and, and frangible devices in eventing and and also sticking to the rules you know sport rules are there for a reason and you have to stick to them but there's some really interesting stuff on on what about things that are allowed within the rules but actually possibly should not be and they they looked at um sort of the rider weight ratio issue is obviously a big topic and how possibly some things are allowed uh, that maybe we should start questioning and a big thing that the world horse welfare always stresses is just because we have done something one way for years doesn't mean that's the way it should be done until the end of time and were there any riders involved in the conversation yeah, Alex Tian, the Olympic rider, is who's actually a patron of World Horse Welfare, was there in the panel discussion, and and he had some really interesting input as well. Um, there was uh, talk about one of the one of the topics was the ethics of veterinary intervention to keep a horse sound. So things like joint medications, and is that okay if it keeps the horse sound enough to be able to compete? And one thing Alex was saying was, well if you are managing intermittent discomfort and and by doing that you can allow a horse to do what it loves doing which is its career um you know absolutely fine as long as it's not something that could be putting the horse at risk of of more injury um and and he he said you know he's a massive believer that horses do enjoy the sport especially at the top level you don't get to be an Olympic eventer or, or show jumper or dressage horse if you're a horse that doesn't enjoy the job because you just wouldn't get there 
no, I think any of us who've tried to uh, persuade or uh, I don't want to use the word make, but persuade horses to do things they don't want to do will know that it's never that easy because they're, they're quite large and strong animals. Um, I, when I looked at this story, Eleanor realised that I had read a book by Professor Campbell a couple of years ago called Animals, Ethics and Us. And we actually ran some extracts of that on our website in July 2019. And it was a really fascinating book. And I know that those extracts get uh, read quite a lot on our website because sometimes when I'm looking to see what stories have done well, they, they pop up despite being quite old. So definitely check out Eleanor's story in the magazine this week and uh, maybe go to our website or look up that book if you are interested in Professor Campbell's work. She seems like a very sensible lady. Becky, coming to you now, you have been looking at a new study in the journal Animals. What's this all about? This is a study where equine behaviourists have looked at the attitudes towards end-of-life decisions in horses. Now, 160 participants took part in a survey which contained 30 scenarios. Now, these range from things like the horse is visibly lame and walk to the horse spends a lot of the day standing quietly with his head lowered. Now, the results showed that participants were most likely to consider euthanasia for physical issues and only a small number of responses included consideration of mental health factors such as depression or stress in horses, for example, following the loss of a companion. And these um, results suggested that welfare issues concerning emotional or behaviour states are at risk of being not factored into these end-of-life decisions. Hmm. And there was some discussion about it being a bit of a social stigma for owners as well to have a horse put down if it was apparently healthy. What was what was sort of said about that? Yes. So the researchers put the results on social media, which generated some discussion between owners. And I understand one owner shared that they had put a horse down and it wasn't necessarily purely a physical reason. And this actually led to some negativity from others who felt that person had put down a healthy horse. But importantly, I mean, what one of the researchers, Dr. Catherine Bell, has highlighted is it's not always a catastrophic physical factor that makes these types of decisions obvious. Mm, sometimes horses can, can sort of have low level issues that, that combine to make them unhappy in whatever way. And I think we've touched on this before in previous studies and stories about euthanasia. But the message that came out to me reading your story, Becky, is that it's all about how owners can be supported in these decisions to make the right decision and a decision they're comfortable with and which is right for the horse. Was that what you came away with as well? Absolutely. It's an awful decision to make as an owner. I know I've been in that place twice myself, once with a very ill horse and the decision was made for me, really. But another horse where it was it was less black and white. Um, I spoke to social scientist Dr. Tamsin Furtado about this and she said often she finds people don't want to talk about these things and think about it, but by talking and having a, a plan in place it can help and certainly it's near organisations such as World Horse Welfare and the British Horse Society and others have done a lot of work in trying to support owners more in making these decisions. Mm, you're totally right, Becky, that sometimes when a horse isn't catastrophically ill it's much harder you know the last horse that that my family had put down he had a, a shoulder injury he, not an injury even he had a sort of tumor in his shoulder that was untreatable he was an older horse he was already in his 20s and at the time when it was diagnosed he was still sound and and, and apparently healthy aside from that and we were able to ride him and we sort of made a decision between me and my mum that we would continue to ride him until he went lame and when he went lame we would have him put down we wouldn't wait for him to degenerate until it became really painful that that would be a point the advice from the vets being that the degeneration was 
likely to be quite quick from that point onwards. So we sort of it goes back to that old saying of uh, better a day too early than a day too late, I think, sometimes. That's it. I, I completely agree. And I think having been through it twice with two horses, you know, it's it's something that is in my head. And I think if people did maybe have the courage to speak about it more, then hopefully, you know, it will make it's never going to make a decision easy, but hopefully it can help people. Definitely. And something most horse owners will have to face at some point. Thank you, Becky. And thank you, Eleanor, for joining us today, too. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn a benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. In this episode, I'm going to look at introducing a horse to traffic and teaching traffic-shy horses to become more confident. So where to start? The first thing to say is, and this applies to all training when you're introducing something new to a horse, is start with a safe environment that you can control or you can manage. There are horses that you can just say, right, I'm going to introduce my horse to traffic and you just go for a ride out on a road or into a random environment and you can get away with it. But for safety's sake and for your horse's ongoing future in terms of being able to deal with those environments it's best to do things in a, with a process and that means being able to increase the intensity of an environment to increase your horse's ability to be able to cope and, and also reduce the amount of energy in an environment so that it's, it's manageable and doesn't push them into a flight state or an incoherent state so when we start this process, you need some basics. The first thing is to be able to control flight. And if you've listened to some of my other podcasts, you'll hear me talk about one rein controls and being able to bend your horse. Now, the reason this is such a great control in terms of managing flight is that it puts your horse in a position or in a shape that means they can't drive. It sort of disengages the hind end or the engine. And so their ability to run is hindered. And it also means that the horse's head comes round and not up. If you understand horse behavior, you'll know that a, when a horse's head is up, they tend to be more anxious or adrenalized. When a horse's head is down, they tend to be more relaxed or there's more endorphins uh, created. And in this situation, you won't be able to, generally speaking, force your horse to put their head down. But what you will be able to do in a bend is relax one half of your horse and allow energy to dissipate by moving round in a circle. That's really, really important because if you hold with two reins, energy is uh, trapped and it can explode out in all sorts of unwanted ways. So that one rein control, or if you have a way that you're really confident in controlling a flight situation, then use that or have that in your bag of tricks before you start introducing your horse to any new um, environment or new object. Now, 
before you start to uh, introduce your horse in a ridden sense, um, you can do it on the ground. And I do like to do this. So the first thing to do is check your horse's responses to, to in this case, traffic. So if you've got a car park, um, take your horse for a lead out there into the car park and give them a look around. And just note, how's your horse coping in that environment? Are they really looking at moving traffic or stationary traffic? Um, do they become more, more aware or in a slightly more flighty? Or are they just normal? This gives you an idea of, of where to move on from, from that point. So if you find your horse uh, slightly more anxious or really worried about traffic, then it's just just take them into that environment don't force them into a place where they want to be but allow them to absorb that environment so just relax yourself protect your personal space and allow them to take in in the environment and then take them away don't force them to look at it or or touch it or anything just at the moment just allow them to take it in and come away and get them used to the environment once they start to get familiar with it, you'll start to see them become almost more inquisitive themselves. And as they become more inquisitive, you can, you can start to approach um, areas that you might not have been able to approach before. So once we've got our horse sort of, and we understand our horse's uh, reactions to, to traffic, then we can start to introduce our traffic uh, introduce our horse to traffic as it's moving and be more specific about it. And a good way, still on the ground, is to use tying up. So I have a standing on the tie exercise, which I use for multiple things in terms of um, handling a horse, because tying up is something we use so often. So I'll tie my horse up and I'll ask them to stand generally parallel to the fence and then I'll, I'll, I'll just move a vehicle past them. So I'll drive a vehicle smoothly past them. It's important not to sort of creep. I tend to want to just move consistently past them. Horses like to see a rhythm and a pattern and something that moves consistently. If you're moving erratically, it makes it harder for horses to process and therefore creates a more anxious or flight response. So... The distance that I would do this from my horse depends on the, the research I've done already in terms of checking my horse's responses when I was on the ground um, previous. So if my horse was quite sensitive, then I would start um, a way off and just drive my horse past. If I get no response, then I start to creep into that, that boundary, what I call a comfort line, a place where my horse is just about able to tolerate it and that's where i'll start to work and i'll drive past my horse or i'll get somebody to drive the vehicle past my horse until i start to see them relax now the important part of this exercise is that my horse doesn't swing from left to right while this is happening and i can control this by using this standing on the tie exercise. And the reason this is so important is because I want to be the person 
to show the horse that they are standing. Where, where I've put you is a perfectly safe place to be, even when traffic is moving past you. And that not only gets them used to um, traffic going past them, but it also gets them used to you being able to show them that it's all right and their confidence in you starts to build. And you'll do this so your horse is seeing, seeing traffic come um, towards them um, from the front and from the back. And again, we just build this. You might switch them to the right side and use different combinations and distances with the traffic and speed. And you can build up a horse's tolerance uh, before you even come to get on them. So hopefully now your horse is starting to become more familiar with traffic from the groundwork. Now you can start to introduce your horse to them while you're riding. And the first thing that I like to do when introducing anything or any object to a horse is following that object. So I would get a vehicle and I would start them driving probably around a, a paddock they're familiar with or a, a, an arena that they're comfortable with. And I would just have the vehicle driving around and I would simply tuck in behind and follow that vehicle along. Initially, the horse is going to want to go left and right and keep their distance. But as they become more familiar with the vehicle moving around, you'll start to feel like you can actually ride them a little bit closer. And this is a great way to introduce traffic to a new horse. To a point, I can use this exercise till I get my horse to go up and actually make contact with the vehicle when it's um, once I've stopped it a couple of times. Now, the next exercise that I might start to do is I might start to trot around the, the vehicle stationary. The engine can be going or off, depending on what you what you want to do. And again, I'm assessing where's that comfort line. And I'm not forcing the comfort line. I'm just focusing on riding um, straight lines around that vehicle. And I do say straight lines because if you just ride a circle, then you're more likely to lose your, your horse's shoulder and they sort of bow out around. If you, if you concentrate on riding to points, then you're more likely to keep your horse's shoulder in line with the, with the rest of your body. So I'll ride circles around the, around the object, or the, in this case, the vehicle, and then I'll stop when I feel like I've got a nice circle, and then I'll get the vehicle to do the same around me at a distance that, that my horse is comfortable with. If my horse, or as I push this distance by, coming, by making the circle slightly closer, my horse starts to become more anxious and wants to move, I manage that movement by allowing them to walk a small circle in the opposite direction to, to, the, to which the vehicle is traveling. And then I'll just allow this to happen until my horse stops. When my horse stops, then we'll simply reverse the roles. And I'll repeat these two exercises for however long it takes for my horse and for me to feel comfortable that my horse is becoming confident in the vehicle moving and the vehicle stationary. So we've got that happening now. We can start to introduce a more real environment in terms of being able to ride out on the road. And for this exercise, I look to riding up the fence or doing a really similar exercise to what I might do to where my horse was tied up. So 
to start off with. I might park my car stationary. I'll have a fence five meters to 10 meters away, depending on your horse's responses. And I'll just ride past the car backwards and forwards. And I won't go round the car this time. This time I'll go past the car. If I get a slight flight response, I'll immediately bend my horse, face my horse back in the new direction, and then go back past again. And I'll do this until I feel like my horse can go through this gap calmly. And then I'll change the sequence so that now the I'm standing still and the vehicle will move back forwards and past me. I'll just ask my horse to stand. I will be relaxed. And should my horse move, sort of start to back up, the main thing I need to control backing up is not a problem. In this instance, I might ask if this happens, the vehicle, the person driving the vehicle to just give me a little more space and manage it that way. Or um, as the rider, your job is to just keep your horse's head straight and the vehicle, until the vehicle moves past and they realize that if they stay straight, allow the vehicle to go past, it will be fine. Um, if a horse learns to turn in this situation, um, then you can start napping and spinning behaviors. A horse that just walks backwards will lose that will to go backwards once they realize that the vehicle will travel past and it's, it's fine. There's a release there once the vehicle travels past. If your horse decides to, to want to sort of shoot forward, then I simply turn my horse back to where they were and then back into the position I was. So it's a small figure of eight. And I'll repeat this until my horse can stand and deal with the, with the traffic passing. And I can use combinations of these exercises I've just spoken about. And I will say, these are some exercises that I use initially. And depending on your horse, I'll use variations of it. So don't feel that these exercises are going to get you all the way to where you want to be. Sometimes you've got to just make small adjustments depending on your horse. So think how you can teach your horse to um, find that that place of comfort. So there we go, guys. Some, some tips for managing your horse um, if they're traffic shy or introducing your horse to traffic. Hope that's been useful. Good luck. Thank you, Jason. Jason will be back next week with the final instalment of his mini-series, talking about riding out in large groups or coping with busy collecting rigs. Our interview will be with Tina Cook, who will reminisce about her first Olympics in Hong Kong back in 2008, and we'll have all the week's news as normal too. Thank you for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, do rate, review and share to help us spread the word and get even more listeners on board as we get ready for all the excitement in Tokyo. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.